So I was thinking as we were starting this morning, this morning we're in the book of Exodus. So as we continue in the series we're on, we're going to look at Exodus, um, Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at several verses in chapter, the very end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. So Exodus 1, starting in verse 22, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, um, paper, on your phone, on a tablet, whatever, feel free. Uh, again, if you're inside that Uversion app, that event, uh, I think it will show the text to you. Um, Assuming I got Cindy all that information in time. I was about to say, I was thinking this morning as we were starting, according to all science now, everything that I have seen, it is actually impossible for anyone to multitask um, effectively. Now, there are those that argue and say, well, sure, I do it all the time. And there are those that say, well, I know that my husband can't do that or whatever it might be. But according to the science, none of us actually can. We can do one thing better than we can do everything. And yet, every Sunday morning right now as we're here, it feels like this constant exercise in multitasking. Um, Stay on this, stay on that, be ready for this, run the slides. Um, So some of the times of silence we take are for me. Uh, I know we've come to appreciate them, but for me too, just to stop and be still for a moment and release the things we can release so we can be as much in in the presence of Jesus as possible in this time. Um, So Exodus chapter 1, we'll start in verse 22. It says this, says, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew baby into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, She got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, She saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, sorry. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened. 
And he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he, Ruel, their father, he asked, Why are you back so soon today? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. Then where is he, their father asked. Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation, and he settled there with him. In time, Ruel, or Jethro, Jethro, he's called elsewhere in the Scriptures, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. Later, he gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. For he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment of silence and allow the passage to sit in our midst before we spend some time looking at it. Moses' story for us is a really beautiful story of God's power to work incredible miracles. As we think about the story of Moses, and some of us know where it begins and where it ends, we recognize in this story God's providence to provide for this little boy who would grow into a man that would become God's hero in these incredible ways. But if we read the story from the beginning without thinking about what happens later on, and we just look at what's happening here, I think it's important that we also recognize the incredible tragedy that the beginning of Moses' life was. That we're honest about the suffering, about the tragedy, about the difficulty that took place. If we didn't know what was to become of Moses, we would look at this story of a child, of a baby, and recognize it simply as a deeply traumatizing beginning of life. He was born into violence. Pharaoh had decided that all of the Hebrew baby boys would be killed as they were born. So obviously that would have brought fear in his pregnant mother, unsure if a boy or a girl was coming her way, and unsure whether or not that meant that this child would survive. So the stress that she would have felt would have been stress that this baby still in her belly would have experienced, would have brought damage in some way. As Moses was born, all of the other boys his age, all the others that were being born, were being slaughtered. They were being killed, which would have brought incredible stress on the entire community, on all that they saw and they experienced, which again would have had an impact on this child. Then he's 
abandoned. Yes, it was to save his own life, but his mother abandoned him. She let him go in a basket on the river where he was discovered by someone else, and that too does damage to a person. Then he spends the next few years in this kind of odd situation where he sort of has two mothers, the adopted mother who is an Egyptian and the, the birth mother who is, is, is nursing the baby. Only one of them knows the actual truth as to what is going on. Only one of them is aware of the story. And no matter all the details that would have been there, which we don't know, all of the interactions that would have taken place, but at the very least, we have the ability to look at it and say, this was clearly not what we would define as a normal, healthy upbringing. And then the story transitions again, and we're told that the baby goes from the birth mother who's nursing him back to the adopted mother, and seemingly mom and sister are ripped from the story. We don't learn any more about their interactions or overlaps that they had. Perhaps this sister is Miriam, who we find later in the story, but we're, we're not certain about that. So we get this disappearance all of a sudden as they're ripped out of his life. And then as he was raised, he was raised away from his own people, away from his own family, away from his own race and his own culture. He was raised in this strange way where all that he could do was watch them from afar, watch them and know that, that in some way what was happening out there felt more like him than what was happening in his actual life. And then we get the understanding, at least in this passage that we read, that he could also pop in on occasion. So it tells us in, uh, in chapter 2 that he went out to visit his people. He went out to visit the Israelites. And we don't know if that had happened at other times or it was some experience that he'd had. But at least in this point, he was able to, to, to peer in. And these first however many years of his life, we need to recognize as being unimaginably difficult, painful, traumatic. Several years ago, and since then we mention it frequently, several years ago we went together through Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And as we looked at it, he talked about the idea that much of who we are as individuals, much of who we are as people, uh, much of who we are that, that leads into becoming who we are is what he called under the iceberg. It's hidden beneath the surface of what people see. He says that only a small portion of our life and our personality, our thoughts, our emotions, even our spirituality can be seen seen by us or seen by others. It's what's above the surface. But all of this other stuff that is underneath the surface is still a part of who we are. It's just hidden. It's hidden from us. It's hidden from others. What we find is often in those realities are lots of unresolved issues that need to be taken care of, unresolved anger issues, trauma that we've tried to hide, suffering that we've experienced, unmet needs, unfulfilled expectations, loss, all of those things start there underneath the surface, unknown to us, unrecognized by other people in this kind of hidden place. And if we don't go looking for what's beneath the surface, the truth is we may never find it. We may never know what is there, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an impact on us, that it isn't a part of who we are. And when it's left undiscovered, it begins to fester. It grows uglier and uglier inside us. It grows more and more painful to us and to other people. As this hidden peace reveals itself in ways that we don't expect and that others don't expect. And sure, we can try to function without ever knowing the truth. 
the truth of who we are, the, tre- the truth of how we have become who we are. And many of us do that. Many of us choose to never explore those things, to never look and see what those things are. But the reality is that when we don't know ourselves, when we don't fully know who we are and how we've come to be who we are, we also can't truly love ourselves. And when we can't love ourselves or don't love ourselves the way God created us and the ways in which God is recreating us, then we also lose the ability to love other people appropriately. Now, we might fake it well. Some of us are experts at faking it, pretending everything is great and we know how to pull it off. But it isn't real. It is a show. It is faking it. It is pretending to pull something off. So Scazzaro urges in his book, he encourages that you and I explore the things that are under the iceberg, that we come to know them, that we deal with them. And if we don't, we become people and sometimes even an entire church that's ashamed of or guarded from our own brokenness that we've experienced the brokenness that we've experienced in our past, the difficulty that we've experienced in our past. We become individuals or a church or a gathering of people or a family that that lives this kind of lie of hiding, of pushing behind, of never noticing or looking at it. We never learn to love ourselves, our God or others the way we were created to because there's so much hiding and lying and pretending that things don't exist that do. And the reality is that when we do that, we begin to leak out all of this toxic, undiscovered pain of the past. And as it leaks and it oozes and it seeps, it creates damage. Damage on our own souls, and damage on other people we claim to love. This was Moses' story. Moses, too, was someone who'd never dealt with his pain and his trauma. He'd never dealt with the experiences of his upbringing, of his background. There's much of it he may not have even known, but we still can understand from the the science of psychology that all those things still had an impact. Whether he knows them or not, they affect who he is and how he responds and how he acts in different situations. So Moses was angry, quite possibly with a a bit of a chip on his shoulder as he was dealing with everything that he was dealing with in the past. He had this special place in his heart for the underdog. Because whether or not he knew it, he perceived himself as an underdog, as someone who didn't quite fit in, as someone who didn't quite belong. He was a victim. Again, whether he knew it or not, he saw himself as a victim. And because of that, he had a special place in his heart for other victims. But he didn't understand all of his own truths, all of his realities that had brought him to this place. So in verse 11, when it mentions that he was grown, I don't think that's actually a true statement. Moses wasn't grown. Moses was older. Grown is the word they use to tell us that he's older, but he wasn't grown. He hadn't fully grown. He hadn't matured into who he needed to be and who he was supposed to be. Scazzaro makes this statement that a person can't be spiritually mature while also being emotionally immature. And that was Moses. 
Moses emotionally immature, this little boy still stuck inside this older grown body, this little boy desperate to get out, trying to figure out who he is and who he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. He'd never matured because he'd never dealt with the issues that had caused him to become who it was that he was becoming. So as he came upon this Israelite, as he came into this fight that was taking place between this Egyptian and this Israelite, everything burst out of him. It exploded. And he looked around to see who noticed. And then it says he killed the Egyptian and he buried him and he hid him in the sand. In defense of the victim, he killed the Egyptian. He killed this Egyptian, I believe, in defense of his own feeling of being a victim, of being abused, of being mistreated. He killed the Egyptian, I think, with the hope that somehow it would release in him a hero to himself, perhaps, to his people, perhaps. And yet the story tells us it didn't work that way. That he didn't become a hero, but instead that the toxic reality of his own emotions and his experiences of his anger and his difficulties, the toxicity of his soul did damage to him and to others. The people he thought he might become a hero to, they didn't trust him. They had no respect for him. They were afraid of him. He was afraid of himself. I think that we sometimes do exactly the same thing in our own stories, in our own life, in our own journeys. That rather than wrestling with the past, with our pain, with our difficulties, whether they're recent past or distant past, that we often choose to ignore the pain, to ignore the past, to allow the things that are under the iceberg to stay beneath the surface. We overlook those realities or else we try to work really hard to erase them as if they don't exist or never existed, as if we don't have to pay attention to them. And that might work for a while. It might be enough for most of us for a time. But eventually, all of those unresolved issues catch up with us. They catch up and we find people who are resentful or spiteful. We run into burnout. We hit a wall and we're not real sure what to do with it, how to manage it, where to go, how to move forward. Some of us lose our faith. Some of us begin to hurt those people who we desire to serve, who we desire to love. And I want you to hear this morning that I believe that they deserve more and that you and I were created for more. The story tells us that Moses ran away. In his fear and his anger and all that he was dealing with, he ran away. He ran away from the palace. He ran away from Pharaoh. He ran away from this princess mother that he had. He ran away from the Israelites. He ran away from himself. He had to get away from all of it. He ran away to get as far away as, as he possibly could, to get away from everything. And instead of getting away from everything, what he found in the desert is the truth. In the desert, Moses found himself. 
Ruth Haley Barton in her book that we've talked about influences our conversation, strengthening the soul of your leadership. She talks about the reality that this move, this running away was an important move for Moses into solitude. Now, Moses wasn't looking for solitude the way we might think of solitude, being time alone with God or special times that we create for God. The truth is, as Moses ran, he wasn't even looking for God. He was looking for escape. He was looking to get away. He was just running. But Barton says, solitude will do its good work whether we know what we are doing or not. And the story tells us that solitude did its work on Moses. Through his roaming in the desert, we don't know how long that lasted for sure before he found Zipporah and her sisters at the well. Through his eventual marriage to Zipporah, through his living as a part of Jethro's family or Rehuel or Ruel, however you say that name in the, in the first mentions that's there, through living as a part of that family, Moses came to know the truth about who he was, about what he'd experienced and about its effect on him. And we find the evidence of that because he names his son in honor of his own truth. In verse 22, it says, later he gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom. For he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Yes. Yes, he had. He had lived as a foreigner. He'd lived as an outsider in this place that wasn't the place he was supposed to be. That wasn't the place that he was supposed to live. And all of those realities that he was coming to know had done damage to his soul. And before he could experience the healing that God wanted to do in Moses' soul, he had to recognize the truth and surrender those truths to God so that he could become something new. Last week as we started this series together, we asked this question, how is it with your soul? And in the asking of that question, we talked about the importance for each of us to experience silence and solitude, to create a space for the Holy Spirit to do the work that the Holy Spirit longs to do in our soul talked about the need for us to create space to be alone with God, space without noise or technology or distractions where we can block all of that out. Now, as I use the word without, I understand that in many of our situations, we have to use the word without a little bit loosely because it might not be possible for us in this time to get completely away from noise or distractions or technology. But what we can do is that we can lessen them or we can minimize them, or we can put, limit them in some way so that we could create focused time and focused space to be alone with Jesus. And I think that if we're willing to do so, that one of the great works that Jesus can do in that space is helping us in finding the truth about me, about who I am, about who I've become through the experiences that I've had, about who it is that God dreams that I can be. Barton writes that one of the primary functions of solitude 
is to settle into ourselves in God's presence. When you and I are willing to be alone with Jesus, we're able to discover who we are. All of those things that we've lived through and the effects that they have, have had on us, the scars that they brought into our life. When we're willing to be alone with Jesus, we can be honest about the past and our traumas and the ways in which they've formed us. When we're willing to be alone with Jesus, we can be honest about the sins in our life and the ways in which they have damaged us and damaged others. When we're willing to be alone in the presence of Jesus, we can be honest about our idols and the ways in which they have hold over us. When we're willing to be alone and spend time with Jesus, that iceberg, all of that stuff that's under the surface can slowly be excavated and it begins to be pushed to the surface and we can discover what it is and God can work to redeem it. Scriptures tell us that Moses ran and that when he ran, he accidentally found solitude with God. And in that time of solitude, in that time of being alone in the presence of God, he discovered the truth about himself. We, too, have been pushed into a kind of solitude. We may not have run and we may not have chosen it, but in the midst of this pandemic, we are experiencing a kind of solitude with slowed down schedules with distance from the people we love, with shorter commutes, so many other things we can list that have brought for us a, a, a version of solitude or distance. Things have been stripped from us. And as we look and we evaluate, we talked several weeks ago about the idea of noticing, there are some of those things that, that we, are, we feel completely comfortable about letting go. Yes, let them be gone forever. I never want those things to come back in my life. But there are other things that have been taken from us that we recognize, that we long for, that we, that we crave, that we miss, that we desire to be a part of our life once again. And in recognizing what those cravings are and in those things that we long for, that we see, they can help us in finding the truth about me, about who I am and what I desire, about what I long for and what I want. As followers of Jesus, what we should discover that our greatest longing is, our deepest desire, should be Jesus. The opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus, the opportunity to be in life with Jesus, to walk forward with Jesus. And in times of solitude and alone and stillness, when we're willing to be alone with God, that discovery should become more and more real in us. And yet, I wonder how many of us, if we're honest, could confess that, that's, that that is actually true. That that is our primary longing. More than we long for the ability to eat inside whatever restaurant we want with whatever group we want to invite to be a part of it. Or to visit with so-and-so or to be back in this place or in that place or to have this opportunity that we've missed. That more than any of that, that we find in ourselves a longing to be with Jesus. If you and I are willing, I believe that one of the great gifts of this struggle, this pandemic, this time that we've been in, is that Jesus could show us the truth. 
the truth about ourselves, the truth about who we are, the truth about who we want to be and who we're created to be. That we could each experience a kind of conversion. An opportunity for us to discover what it is, discover Jesus more fully and what it is that Jesus dreams is true about our life. In her book, Barton says, conversion has to do with self-knowledge that brings with it an awareness of the discrepancy between what we are now and what we are meant to be. And in using this word conversion, we're not talking about a first-time introduction with Jesus, but instead this ongoing work of conversion that happens in us, this ongoing recognition and realization that there is a discrepancy between who I am now and what God meant for me to be. It's an ongoing reality of what we know is a journey of discipleship, an ongoing moving forward. So perhaps, if you and I are willing, we could be able to come out of this time of solitude, finding the truth about me, becoming more aware of who it is that God has created me to be, created you to be. No matter what we've experienced or walked through in our past, recognizing those things and letting God redeem them so that we can become all that we were created to be. So what is it that God wants to make new inside of you, in you and me? What is it that God wants to make new? What pain or suffering or disappointment exists in our past that needs to be recognized and healed? How is it that God wants to redeem the difficulties that you and I have experienced and make something miraculous out of them. Church, I am absolutely convinced that if you and I are willing to create the space, the Holy Spirit will do work in us. The Holy Spirit will do the work that the Spirit longs to do and has always longed to do in us if you and I are willing to create the space to allow that to happen. So what is it that you need to do to create the space to experience truth? What is it that you need to do to create the space to experience transformation? And how could you do that today? and tomorrow, and the next day, each day deciding to make that space for the Holy Spirit to go to work. Pray with me, would you? Precious Lord Jesus, Open our eyes to the ways in which we can and should create space for you. Open our eyes to all of the realities that exist beneath the surface of our life, underneath the iceberg. Open our eyes to all of the damage that those truths have caused in us and are causing in others. And God, through the space that is created, work the miraculous work of redemption in us.
In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.